It's 835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Hope you had a great weekend. It is already 75 degrees. I never complain about the heat. You live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You go through the winters that we go through. Uh, I can stand a few warm days. A lot of stuff coming up on today's program. Let's get right to it. We start off today's show like we start off every show with what I call three big things, things I think you need to know to discuss at the gym or at lunch or at the coffee closet or whatever. Big story number one, and it's going to be the dominant story locally all day. Two people shot outside the entrance to Bradford Beach, reportedly by a sheriff's deputy. There is a video of this. Um, Let's back into this topic. Yesterday, of course, was a warm day. And when you have warm days, one of the first things that happens is people gravitate towards bodies of water. So last night... The, the lakefront was incredibly crowded, as it typically is. And if you've ever driven, if you've ever driven along Lincoln Memorial Drive um, on a warm summer evening, particularly one of the first warm summer evenings, you know that there's just a, a ton of people there. You've got the North Point Burger Bar, which is a great place. That is a people attraction. It is very, very crowded. There's lots of cars that are down there. Traffic is slow. You have lots of people milling around, walking in the median strips, walking up and down the sidewalks, walking on the beaches. It, it's a very, very people-intensive spot. All right, now there's a number of accounts of this, and like I say, there, there is a video out there. Let me just describe the way Fox 6 reports it and other people are reporting it, but I think there's this kind of a complete uh, report of this. The Waukesha County Sheriff's Department will be investigating the investigating agency that looks into a deputy-involved shooting that unfolded on the lakefront last night. Witnesses say a deputy opened fire on a suspect on Lincoln Memorial Drive around 8 p.m. Sunday. When the gunfire stopped, two people were shot, according to reports. Then they have the video. The video shows a green SUV. This was an Audi um, Q5. Audis are, for a variety of reasons, they are frequently the most stolen cars. I don't know if this was a stolen Audi or not, but when you hear about stolen cars, a lot of times they are Audis. The video shows a green SUV pursued by what appears to be sheriff's deputies from Water Tower Road down to Lincoln Memorial Drive. So you're talking about that that road that kind of runs through Lake Park up there. So it's coming down that road towards the lakefront 8 o'clock on Sunday night when the lakefront is packed with people. The SUV drives up onto the median and tries to make its way around another vehicle and then hits a minivan. A law enforcement officer then fires into the driver's side of the SUV. So you have, a again, a fleeing vehicle driving into the heart of a heavily populated area, driving up on a median strip in an effort to try to avoid another vehicle, hitting a car and continuing to move. People have come forward telling Fox 6 News that law enforcement opened fire on the driver. Quote, there was a police car behind him with lights on, and they were trying to tell him to pull over to the right. So the car tried to get away, went over the grass, tried to drive down Lincoln Memorial, went over the median, and crashed into a car as they were shooting at him, said such and such a, a witness. It got later on in the evening, and basically the contentious contentions was we heard three gunshots. People kind of cleared out a little bit from the beach area. You saw the overall shuffle of people. And again, because this was the sheriff's department that was involved, you need an outside agency to investigate. So the investigation is, of course, you know, still underway, and more details will emerge. But at least at the outset, 
you know, the preliminary things are you, you have a car that for whatever reasons the police were trying to pull over. It takes off on them, drives into a heavily populated area. You know, the, you know, the Lincoln Memorial Drive on a warm Sunday evening where there's a ton of people goes up on the median strip to try to avoid the police, keeps going. And at some point in time, apparently a sheriff's deputy in what I believe is probably an effort to stop the car before it hits him or hits other people, shoots. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, more details are going to be emerging about this. So I want to talk about uh, just just basic concepts as opposed to the specifics of, of this. But as I'm listening to this story, and, and feel free to disagree, it, if it is in fact true that you have a vehicle, any vehicle, that is attempting to elude police officers that drives into a heavily populated area and tries to get away, putting officers' lives and the lives of innocent people at risk, I think the officers have to do something to stop the vehicle. Right, 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't want to be premature with this, but, I mean, my, my general sense is, you know, you had a car that pulls into, again, Lincoln Memorial Drive, where there's just a ton of people around in an effort to get away from law enforcement, goes up on a median, and if that is the case, I mean, I think law enforcement has to do, you can't, this is one of the situations, sometimes when we talk about chasing, we talk about, okay, the, the need to try to, you know, assess risk, and you don't want to put innocent people's lives in danger. You want to, don't want to put police officers' lives in danger. But at the same time, if you have somebody that is fleeing and they drive into a farmer's market or they drive up and down, you know, you pull into Lake Drive, Lincoln Memorial Drive, you know, on a Sunday night when there's hundreds and hundreds, maybe more, people milling around, it seems to me the police have to do something. 414-799-1620 is the number. Let's start with Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Um, I, I think that when the cops put on their sirens or, or they're chasing you, you either stop or there's going to be a consequence. And it, this guy didn't. I mean, I saw a little bit of the video last night. And I, unfortunately, it was heavily populated. Yep. The, the guy was, uh, it looked like, it almost looked like in that video that I saw that there was a sheriff's deputy in the road that almost got hit. Yep. So that who fires his weapon. Um, I, there has to be a consequence. I know in Milwaukee you can run away from everyone and they won't chase you, but you're, the sheriffs patrol the down there by the beach. And so if you don't stop, unfortunately in this case, these guys got shot, but there has to be. There has to be a, a penalty or a consequence. Well, Mike, it's also a public – it's also – it seems to me it's a public safety matter. I guess that's how I, I look at it. Just like I don't think – I don't think you pursue a chase if you're going to put people at risk. On the other hand, if somebody takes off and they're driving into a flower market or into a farmer's market or down Lincoln Memorial Drive you know, on the median strip at 8 o'clock on a Sunday night when you've got hundreds of people down there, you can't just let them plow into people. You have to do something that's going to stop them. And unfortunately, um, it, it might be the, the use of deadly force because that vehicle is a deadly weapon in and of itself if somebody is driving in an irresponsible fashion. Uh, I, I agree, and, and I think that um, 
had they stopped or done what they were supposed to do, sure. we wouldn't be having this conversation. Oh, oh, they they right. would have been given a ticket or whatever. But now, hopefully, the word goes out that, hey, if you don't stop down at the lakefront, when they pull you over, there's going to be a consequence. And it may be, you know, you may be uh, whatever the situation is. But, but you know, be held responsible. Well, well, right? well just obey the police. Thanks for, and again, you know, I don't want to necessarily look at it from a consequence perspective because, you know, we don't have the death penalty for trying to elude police. So that that's... That, that's not necessarily standard. The standard is going to be a public safety situation. And, I mean, again, I don't know what the justification, the description is going to be, but my guess is you have a car that tries to elude the officers, it flees, it pulls into a heavily populated area. They're concerned for their own lives, and they're concerned for their lives of the people around them. And so uh, that that's where you get the deadly force that, that comes in. It's as a result of, again, if that's the case, you know what the driver chose to do. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is big story number one. Um, again, the, the investigation is ongoing, but but if you have a situation, again, talking in general terms, where you have somebody who is, by the reckless driving, is putting the lives of people on the lakefront in danger, I mean, don't you expect the police to do something? We continue the conversation. It's 844. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. It's 847. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Is Governor Walker warming to the idea of toll roads? Some lawmakers are trying to get him to change his mind. Scafidi and Billstat share the details today at 135. That's here on WTMJ. Our big thing, number one, the shooting down at the lakefront. It appears from witness descriptions in the video that what happened is you have a, a car that started to flee sheriff's deputies. It came down that, that tower road that leads like kind of through the park there um, onto Lincoln Memorial Drive, 730 or 8 o'clock last night, where there were tons of people. Um, the car banged into another car, tried to get away, goes up on the median strip. At some point in the thing, a sheriff's deputy who, I, I agree with our first caller, was kind of in the vicinity of there um, to avoid getting run over. And I presume the argument is going to be to have avoid having other people ran, run over, fired shots into the, the vehicle. Um, two people, I believe, hit. Don't have a word on, don't have words on that uh, as to what their condition is. But... I think what's happened here is you have this car that pulls into, in an effort to get away from law enforcement, pulls into a very, very heavily populated area with people all over, and the police have to use deadly force. If that's the case, I'm, I'm not going to be too terribly sympathetic. You can't – I'm not going to be too sympathetic. On our WTMJ text line, somebody says, well, they, they should use the, the pit stop maneuver. That's safer. Pit stop is where you – you try to block cars and you try to force them and you try to you know force them off the road and get your car in front and i don't disagree with any of that but you have to look at the conditions you you can't you cannot do that on lincoln memorial drive at 7:30 on a sunday night i don't believe with all those people that are around you know it's one thing on an open highway it's one thing to try to do that i guess the question becomes if a car is trying to avoid if that's what happened if a car is trying to avoid the police in a heavily crowded area do you allow them to just drive off, go up on a median strip? And and what happens if a third of a mile down the road, that car hits and kills three people? I mean, what what is the argument then? 414-799-1620 is the number. Rob in Milwaukee. Rob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. What do you think? Um, I have a, an opinion on the uh, action of the police. 
I didn't see last night stuff on TV, but and I don't know where they aimed, but I think they should aim at the tires instead of aiming uh, at the windows um, or the side of the car. I also don't know if the uh, if they had time to figure out where they were going to shoot, but uh, I, I I think that the well, I think maybe they have a good reason for uh, for doing it at Lincoln Memorial Drive. But mm-hmm. what do you think about shooting, and where does it go? Well, I, I mean, I, I, Rob, thanks. I, I mean, I'll tell you. I'll answer your question directly. Um, you got to be careful about watching too many action movies. I mean, the, the truth is, you know, police aren't shooting at the police are shooting at the car. They are using deadly force in order to either protect their lives or protect the lives of, of others. And in a situation like that, I am certain that they are shooting to disable the driver. That, that's, what they're, that's what they're doing, and that is what their intent is. And this idea of, okay, let's try to shoot at the tires. You've got this moving vehicle. Um, that's not how police are, are taught. I mean, police are taught if, if you're going to pull out your gun and you're going to be in a situation where you are trying to think, trying to stop what you believe is an, an imminent threat, again, a danger to your lives or the life of, of others, to need de- use deadly force, you're using deadly force, and you're directing at the driver. You're trying to stop them. Um, I, I have the greatest respect for the marksmanship of law enforcement, but th- you're not trained to try to shoot out the tires. Trying to shoot out the tires of a moving vehicle is something you kind of see in the John Wick movies. You, you don't... <laughs> You don't see it, you know, from an average cop on the street. They're taught to, if you believe that there is a threat and a car, just in theory, if this is what happened, a car driving down a crowded lakefront in an effort to get away from police and pulling up onto a median strip to avoid another parked car, that that is potentially a deadly threat. Um, John from Bayside says, I was at Bradford Beach yesterday, and there were likely upwards of 2,000 people on the beach and the surrounding area. Allowing the automobile to continue could have resulted in a situation like we we saw on the London Bridge. The driver could have killed or injured several dozen people. The officer's actions were, in fact, you know, you know, justified. Um, and again, I, I th- that's going to all emerge. I mean, I, I I don't know what's ultimately going to happen here. But if if that's the scenario, I just don't see how you can let a car drive away. Even if you knock off the pursuit, you know, the car is now if they're pulling up on the median or they're plowing through these crowds. Um, seriously, what are you going to do, Mike? On the south side, Mike, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. I was right behind the uh, uh, sheriff's that pulled over this, uh, or attempted to pull over this car last night on uh, Tower Drive. And after it uh, went across the parkway and went over the medium once, it came back over the medium again and just barely hit a pedestrian that was there. So whatever the, the sheriff did yesterday, I am totally in agreement with what they did. Let's back up a little bit. So you were, you were in that area, you were like... Did, did you? Was there in fact a chase? What did you see happen? How did this whole thing start? I'm at the uh, stoplight right across uh, the street from the custard stand, going up Tower Drive. The, the, the car pulls in the opposite direction up Tower Drive. The squad pulls in right now, na- right behind it. The light turns green. I go right behind the uh, sheriff squad, and five seconds later, his lights go on. As soon as his lights went on, that car. Uh, made a left turn over the curb onto the park and uh, headed towards uh, Lincoln Memorial Drive. It got to Lincoln Drive, went over the, the medium once, 
in an attempt to get away. The squad followed it. It came back uh, uh, on the other medium. That's where it almost hit the... In fact, it did brush the pedestrian, okay? So I am in total agreement with uh, what the, uh, the sheriff's department did at that time. I mean, uh, he had the lights on. The, the uh, car evaded police, uh, evaded the sheriff in total agreement. I mean, he came very close. In fact, he probably, like I said, did hit this pedestrian coming back across the median. Uh, okay, so, so Mike, from based on what you saw, there is no question in your mind that the driver of the car was trying to get away. Absolutely none. None. Because okay. somebody suggested this morning that, well, maybe that the uh, the vehicle was just trying to find a place to pull over and there was no yeah. effort. Oh, that's not that what happened. That is laughable, Jeff. That is laughable. I saw the entire thing. That car, as soon as the lights came on from that squad, he made a beeline across the park uh, and was absolutely trying to evade uh, the squad. There's no question about it. Um, let me ask you a, a, another question. I, I, I assume, and I'm trying to picture at that time of night, seven thirty, eight o'clock. My guess is there's still a ton of people down on the lakefront in that area. Am I right? Were there a lot of people around? It's packed. It's wall-to-wall cars. You know, the, the lake, the tower drive is backed up because there's so many cars both ways going up the hill, coming down the hill. Uh, the Memorial Drive in front of uh, just where Bradford Beach starts is wall-to-wall cars and people. So in your opinion, if if the officer had just let this car continue to drive away, there's at least a decent chance that somebody else could have been hurt or killed as this car is trying to take off. Absolutely. I don't know where he was going. There was no place to go. I mean, (laughs) there were cars on both sides. He's up over the medium once. He's up over the medium again. I didn't know where the heck he thought he was going. Um, uh, he was pretty boxed in. Thanks for the call. I appreciate the perspective. That is an eyewitness. And that is that is exactly how, as, as I was reading the descriptions, that is exactly how it sounds to me. Again, I, you have to have an investigation. But if this is true, that a car in that sort of situation, absolutely packed, you know, tries to take off on police officers where you've got all these people around, um, and is trying to get away and puts the officer's life, or more importantly, or equally as importantly, you know, the lives of innocent people um, the, at risk, the, the, the police have to, in fact, respond. And if that's what happened, this ends up being a justified shooting. Now, I also understand that some people, like we had the, the texter, well, you shoot at the tires or whatever. That, that's not how officers are trained to do it. it this isn't, again, it, it's, not, it's not the movies. If you believe that there is a threat, that is putting your life in danger or the lives of other people in danger, you shoot to end the threat, which means, in this case, taking out the driver. It's 857. This is Jeff Wagner. Say, King, before you leave, there's a story that every once in a while these stories come out, and I I guarantee that my name is never going to be associated with one of these types of stories. Okay. Miller Park Streaker faces possible charges for run during Brewers-Giants game. A Burlington man who ran bare bottom onto the field at Miller Park during a Brewers game on Thursday could be charged with misdemeanor, lewd and lascivious behavior, disorderly conduct, and trespassing. The man, clad in socks, an undershirt, and a shirt. Presumably, that's it. Socks, an undershirt, and a shirt. 
displaying his shortcomings, ran onto the field Thursday from the third base stance headed towards the San Francisco Giants shortstop Brandon Crawford in the bottom of the second inning. Crawford avoided the streaker who was smiling when he was subdued by security officials before being arrested by the police. I'm looking at kind of the takedown, and I don't know. (laughs) Okay, I just wonder what goes through somebody's mind. You're sitting in the stands, and I'm going to pull down my pants and run off, run out onto the field. See, and I'm I'm disappointed by his lack of commitment. (laughs) If you're going to take it off. Take it all off. Take it all off. Who keeps their socks on? What's wrong with you? That's the, that. That's exactly it, right? It's right. It's, do it uh, all, or don't do it. Right, right. Let's it. Right, yeah. Not right. Not it's like not a half streak. Well, okay. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about the other part of that. I mean, it's just. I mean, you see the way those security people tackle folks. I mean, that's. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're, they're taking you down big time, you know. And it's that I mean, might have been part of the draw, Jeff. Well, we well, don't know. Well, <laughs> that's it. I mean, you're on that dirt infield. I mean, that that I just don't want. That, you know, there, there's certain like types of burns that you know you just don't want in certain parts of your anatomy. All right. Okay. Well, just just so you know, I, I guarantee. I, I'm not sure what I might end up in the headlines for. I guarantee you. There is not enough alcohol, and I assume alcohol was, was probably involved here. There is not enough alcohol in the world. In all the ball games I've been to, I've never sat there and said, you know what, I think I'm going to pull off my pants and run out onto the field. And the world is probably much better for that, as a matter of fact. Oh, well, yes, he's uh, facing charges. Misdemeanor, lewd and lascivious behavior, disorderly conduct, and trespassing. Oh, um, let's see, free legal advice from a recovering attorney. You know, if you're ever sitting at Miller Park and you think, I want to run out on the field, naked or not, uh, just no. <laughs> just, just no. Pass on that. All right. Big story number two. Mayor Tom Barrett. Here's the headline. Milwaukee could lose 84 police officers due to budget shortfall. Here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. The city of Milwaukee could be forced to cut 84 police officer positions in next year's budget, Mayor Tom Barrett said. I do not want to have fewer police officers in the city, Barrett said in an interview. I'm trying to do everything I can to find a way to avoid this. All right, more on that in just a minute. Barrett also warned that Milwaukee may be forced to eliminate 75 firefighter positions, six public health nurses, and 10 code inspector jobs, and close two libraries in the 2018 budget. I view all of this in the context of public safety and actually crime prevention in many respects. And he says the budget cuts would have an immediate effect on the number and sizes of recruit classes next year. And then he goes on to talk about how his position, his opinion, the, the state needs to give the city of Milwaukee more in shared revenue. Now, Barrett has been peddling this line for the last several months that Milwaukee is a net exporter. In other words, they send more in taxes to the state than they get back in shared revenue. That is, a, my opinion, it is a bogus argument. It, it's, I guess, true technically, but Barrett doesn't consider the all the money that the state gives or all the money that the state spends on providing services to Milwaukee that aren't covered under the shared revenue agreement. It's not like the only revenue and the only things, the only state money that's spent in the city of Milwaukee is the shared revenue that comes back. And and actually, so to argue that 
Milwaukee is a, a net exporter, in other words, we send more money to the state than Milwaukee gets back, is one of those things that might, in a very technical sense, be accurate, but only if you have a very, very narrow view of shared revenue. But I, I want to say this at the start of this conversation. I, I understand that the mayor says, hey, you know, we, we need to get more money. Um, we uh, we should be able to, you know, increase taxes on our residents and things like that. So that that's that's fine. And I want to put that aside. I want to put that aside for a second. And I want to talk about the threat to eliminate police, firefighter, um, code inspector, and public health nurses. For the last, oh gosh, a- at least 20 years, maybe longer, whenever there has been a budget issue, and we've been looking at a shutdown of government, it's always the hysteria. You know, when they're talking about, like, shutting down the federal government, Oh, we, we just don't have enough money. We've got to cut out things. You know, they, they never talk about getting rid of mid-level bureaucrats. What they say is, we've got to close the national parks, or we've got to shut down the Washington Monument, or we've got to close the Smithsonian's. We have to do something that's going to cause as much pain as possible to the largest number of people. And, of course, the reason the politicians do this is because they want to dramatize and try to create this urgency that might not otherwise exist. Now, by the way, I think Barrett, again, I, there's there's two issues here. Maybe Barrett has a legitimate issue that the, the even though I don't buy this argument that Milwaukee is a net exporter in the real world of revenue, but maybe he has an argument saying, hey, you should loosen up the restraints on us and, you know, and, and let us tax our residents more to generate more money, right? But That's not the aspect of this issue that I want to talk about. What I found to be so interesting in the mayor's story, it's not a couple aides in his. He's not saying, you know, if we don't get the budget, I'm going to have to get rid of my chief of staff or I'm going to have to get rid of a couple aides in my office. If we don't get this budget, we're going to have to cut the uh, budget of the members of the Common Council and the aldermen are going to lose one of their aides. We're, he doesn't say, if we're not going to get uh, the budget, we're going to get rid of a couple parking checkers. No offense to you, parking checkers. Or we're going to get le- rid of some mid-level managers. That's not what he goes to. He goes and says, if I don't get my way and we don't get more money, we've got to get rid of, we've got to get rid of cops. We've got to get rid of firefighters. We've got to get rid of public health nurses. We've got to get rid of building inspectors. It is going to put public safety at risk. Why do you do that? Well, you do it because then you get the headline. If he says, hey, you know, we're going to have to cut a couple positions in my office or we're going to have to cut positions in uh, the aldermen's the aides and things like that, everybody's going to go, yeah, what's the problem? All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, he might have a legitimate beef about, you know, whether or not Milwaukee should be able to increase its ways it re- generates revenue from its citizens. Okay, that, that's fine, and that's a conversation for another day. But this idea that it's got to be police, it's got to be firefighters, it's got to be public health nurses, they're the ones that are going to go, I think is politics in the extreme. Like I say, cut your office, Tom. Y'all get If you got to get rid of spots, before you get rid of a police officer spot, I, I'd get rid of aides to the various members of the Common Council. I'd get rid of 
mid-level managers throughout the city. And I'm again, I'm not encouraging that those jobs go. I'm just saying, isn't it interesting that when we're trying to generate a panic or an urgency, we go for the cops, we go for the firefighters, we don't go for the people that, well, maybe isn't really going to affect the quality of life. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, are you buying into the mayor? If we don't get more money, we've got to go with cops. Should that be position number one? Or maybe should you get rid of other spots first? It's 921, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. After the weekend set in the desert, the Brewers rest up today before a day-night doubleheader tomorrow in St. Louis. Our coverage of Game 1 will begin at 1240 tomorrow afternoon, sponsored by your Milwaukee Honda dealers. And I, I can... I, I knew you guys would get this. <laughs> I knew you would get it over the weekend. Tom Barrett pleading poverty says, I need more money from the state. I, I, we, you know, I need more money from the state. And if I don't get it, we're going to get rid of 84 police officers. We're going to get rid of 75 firefighters, six public health nurses, 10 code inspectors. Barrett's not talking about getting rid of positions in his office. He's not talking about getting rid of alderman aides. This is the tactic, the scare tactic that politicians use all the time. Hey, if you don't give me what I want, let's figure out. We're, we're going to get rid of cops. We're going to endanger public safety. Um, okay, maybe before you get rid of cops, Tom, you'd want to, again, get rid of some aides to aldermen or get rid of some of the people in your office. But, of course, if he said that, well, everybody would say, well, well why do you have so many aides? Let's talk to... Um, Rob in Waukesha, you're on 620 WTMJ. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, Rob. What do you think about this? Hey, Jeff. Uh, I was just wondering, since we put the light rail system down there in Milwaukee, you know, yeah. why would they cut the officers and the firefighters for that and not this? Very good. See, Rob, I, I, Rob, t- take 10 bucks out of petty cash. Well, not if you're working someplace without permission of your boss. But, th- all right, th- this this is the thing. Tom Barrett is pleading poverty. All right, I, I don't have enough money to pay for the police we need. But yet, you're tearing up the streets of Milwaukee to put in a trolley line that no one is going to ride. And let's be honest, some of the money is coming from the, the federal government. All right, but what forty, fifty million is coming from the, the is coming from Milwaukee. And then you've got the operating costs. Yeah, isn't that an interesting thing? Tens of millions of dollars for the trolley, no money for cops. Hmm. Interesting priority there. Um, but yeah, of course, and of course, nobody at the Journal Sentinel thinks to ask that question. Let's see on our text line. It's sad to say, but I not, do not feel the mayor has ever really supported police or firefighters. That has always been his go-to for budget cuts. I feel he's still upset regarding the police and fire union residency ruling. Um, Sam writes, Barrett is running the city the way he chooses to for some time. I say to the legislature, call his bluff. Let's talk to Bob on the south side. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, you know, I've been hearing the same whine ever since Henry Meyer. I think they have a little recording in Milwaukee. They push a button as soon as the budgeting comes up and it whines. But the outstate <laughs> people are not going to give them any more money, I can guarantee that. But you prioritize. You sit down and you put down properly funding the budget all the way through on a piece of paper. And then you say, okay, police and fire, that's number one. The right. health, that's number three. And and you say how much money is coming in when you get uh, down to where the 
uh, you run out of money, then everything underneath there just gets cut off. I don't think that's very hard. Well, no, Bob, and, and you're, you know, and, and, and you're absolutely right. And if you if you have to make cuts, it's okay. What is the? It would seem to me, police and fire, like you were saying, that's the priority. Maybe a second aide working for a particular alderman or a couple of the people that are helping Tom Barrett do PR or whatever. I don't think the public would be outraged if those spots went away. No, I don't think so either. I'd be happy to get rid of them. <laughs> well, well, that's exactly. And thanks for and that's why. And see, but that's why Barrett doesn't come out and say, "Oh, if if I don't get more money from the the state, um, I, if I don't get more money, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose two of my aides, or the aldermen are gonna each lose an aide, and we're gonna get rid of some mid level managers, and maybe we're gonna have a couple fewer parking checkers. Again, no offense to parking checkers. And look, I don't want to see anybody lose their jobs. I, I don't. But but if that's really seriously the case. You prioritize. But, of course, if you say, I'm going to lose one of my aides or, you know, we're going to have to cut back on a couple people, you know, that work in City Hall, nobody's going to give a rat's rump before that. That's not going to get the headlines. But let's go after the cops. Well, you go after the cops, and it demonstrates, again, the irresponsibility. The police department has been grossly underfunded for years. And it seems to me, again, you have to prioritize things. And, yes, it is frustrating the way some of these stories get covered that, that nobody says well mr mayor you know why aren't you talking about getting rid of other less important less less important if you if you agree with me that public safety is a, a, a high priority why aren't you talking about getting rid of administrators see school districts do this too i mean this is whenever you talk oh if we don't get this more money you know we're going to have to we're going to have to get rid of the athletic program not gee you know we've got four assistant principals each making $125,000 a year we're going to get rid of two of those no we're going to get rid of the football program they do it because they are trying to create an alarmist environment carolyn on the northwest side carolyn you're in 620 wtmj good morning Good morning. Um, I'm agreeing with most of what your previous callers have been saying, and it, it's sort of one of those penny-wise, pound-foolish things. There's so many police positions that are empty and firefighter positions. My son is a firefighter, and last year they were kind of joking around about how, who works the most doubles. Well, they already work 24-hour shifts, so when they work doubles, they're working 48 hours, and most of them are averaging four to five doubles a month. Yeah. And when you're paying overtime, you're you're spending far more money than if you had the positions filled in the first place. Well, 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 exactly. So you you want to have appropriate staffing, and I don't know about you, Carolyn, and I mean I don't live in the city of Milwaukee, but to me, a, a primary thing, I want the firefighters, I want the public health nurses, I want the cops. I don't care if a particular alderman, you know, has an aide that's making seventy thousand dollars a year or not. I don't care. Do the job yourself. You don't need the aide. We need the cops. Interesting that the mayor doesn't go after the aides; he goes after the cops. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's and of course, and then again, you have a complicit media that lets him get away for it. They reported this during the interview. Nobody asks him that. Well, why are we cutting the cops instead of? Getting rid of two or three positions in your office is a starting point. And nobody asks that question. Um, that's why you listen to this show. It's 935. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. After she was caught on camera berating a police officer, a popular sports reporter was fired from her job. Did the punishment fit the crime? What if the video never surfaced? Would she have still been fired? Discuss with Scafidi and Billstad at 207 today. I saw the video. It's a uh, this woman who completely out of control 
claims that, that she was. That's not her. She was she was drugged. Um, yeah. OK. All right. But you can check that out with them. All right. Uh, let me back into big story. Number three. Friday night. I was at my niece, who's also my goddaughter, her, her graduation, graduated from Pewaukee High School. Um, and actually, it was a very nice ceremony. Uh, most, if not all, the teachers attended. It was in the high school gym. The place was packed with parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents. It, it was a very, very nice event. And as I've said before, I'm extremely proud of my, my niece. Her name is Sydney. Um, and uh, I'm just, it was, it was a very nice event. One of my random observations and I, I've noticed this before. I first noticed it several years ago when I, I used to do, I was invited to give a brief little speech. There was a McGuanago, um, uh, I, uh, I think. I think it was the McGuanago Lions Club. And they used to have this thing where they would give out scholarships, little scholarships to like high school sophomores. And it was a very nice event. And, they, and I, I noticed this at the time that there, there's really a difference between boys and girls. And I don't. I understand that that's not necessarily the most profound thing I've ever said, but you know. So these are sophomores, and I would I, the, the the girls would come dressed to the nines, and I was sitting there thinking, I know these are like fifteen year old girls, um, but I'm, I'm glad I'm not a bartender because or a bouncer because you'd look at these fifteen year olds and they're dressed to the nines, and at least a bunch of them could pass for twenty two, and and you know that they're fifteen. But I'm like, wow, you know they. <laughs> Wow. And then the boys would show up, and they're in shorts and stuff, and the boys look like they just kind of rolled out of bed, and they look like they're 14-year-old boys. It was just kind of the difference. And I, as I was at this graduation, you know, and everybody's in caps and gowns, but afterwards they take off their caps and gowns, and they're, they're kind of mingling. And, I, again, I, I sort of noticed the same thing. All the young ladies just dressed to the nines, and, the, uh, you know, the makeup and the high heels and the nice dresses and stuff like that, and, and the boys, and I'm generalizing, but, you know, shorts and flip-flops and things like that. And it just, it was kind of, again, it was this, I'm not being judgmental one way or the other. It was just kind of this interesting contrast that the, the girls are all dressing up um, to the nines. And at least many of the boys, uh, you know, just, they're kind of like, well, all right, got off the uh, playground, uh, just got done shooting some hoops here. I'll, I'll, I'll show up. And so it was just kind of one of these interesting contrasts. But anyhow, after the event, and actually beforehand, I'm listening to people in the crowd. I'm listening to some of the kids talk and all. And, and lots and lots of the kids, almost everybody is talking about where they're going to go to colleges. And um, what a number of them did, matter of fact, most of them did, is on the top of their, their, their graduation caps, the mortarboards, you know, they have... They put the the trend is they put the um, the signia the mascot the emblem of the college that they are going to, and I mean I remember I was sitting up in in the bleachers. Mom and Dad get the reserve seats, so I'm up in the bleachers with my ten year old nephew, and I'm looking, and I would say the overwhelming majority, you know, of the kids all have like emblems um, of of where they're going to college that are on the top of of again their their caps, and don't get me wrong. I think, I think for a lot of people, you know, four-year colleges are a great thing, um, and it just absolutely tremendous. But the other reality is, there are lots and lots of people for whom a four-year college is not the right way to go. I mean, obviously, we need doctors and lawyers, but we also need 
machine, we need, you know, metal fabricators, and we need plumbers, and we need electricians, and we need roofers, and we need, you know, people who, you know, who do all sorts of, you know, the things, the, the vocational skills, the, the, the stuff with their hands. I mean, I learned early on that when it comes to lots of stuff around the house, number one, I don't do it because, number one, I can't fix it, and number two, I almost always make it worse if I get involved. So I bring this up because it's big story number three. President Trump is coming to southeastern Wisconsin tomorrow. He's going to do a fundraiser for Governor Walker, but he's also going to be visiting Waukesha County Technical College, and this is part of his push to expand the country's use of apprenticeships to fill unmet labor needs. Now, in Wisconsin, even though unemployment is is almost eliminated, I mean, unemployment is down to 3.2%, which is very close to what they call structural unemployment. You're never going to have full employment because there's always going to be people that are kind of between jobs um, you know, or just I'm going to take a little bit of time off or, hey, I've, I've quit this one job and I'm, I'm waiting to start my other one. But, you know, once you start getting around 3.2 percent, you're getting close to anybody who wants a job can find a, a, a has a job. You're getting very, very close to that. Um, one of the areas, though, that has been lagging has been in the whole you know, manufacturing sector. And we've talked to Governor Walker about this. Um, you know, Wisconsin was one of 28 states, 26 states last year, that suffered a net job loss in manufacturing. And, of course, manufacturing, for example, is, you know, one of these jobs, that if you want to talk about sustainable middle-class, you know, employment, you know, manufacturing is one of those areas. And one of the things that employers are saying is that they can't find people with the skill levels to to do the, the work um, and one of the problems is is that they just don't they're not getting the feeders the employer employers are saying we're not getting the feeder stuff we're, we're not getting the, the people from the vocational schools we're not getting the people who you know leave high school and you know want want the apprenticeships you know are willing to come in you know and work for you know a couple years you know learning what a particular trade is everybody thinks they need to go off to college which again this isn't a knock on college okay i went about as far as there is to go you know in school and i appreciate that but i didn't have either the ability or the aptitude to you know do some of the, the the trade work that just wasn't I wouldn't have been any good at it I would have been a failure but at the same time there's all sorts of other people that have those skills they have the aptitude but for whatever reasons they are choosing not to go into the trades and so the president is coming here to talk about apprenticeships our number is 414-799-1620 that is the Acunet mortgage talk and text line I believe that this is a huge problem in the state and in the country, and that is the ability to hook, develop the skill sets that people need moving forward to try to, you know, again, fill the jobs that we're all going to need. And people, like I say, need doctors and they need lawyers, and hopefully they continue to need radio talk show hosts and things like that. But we also need all these other jobs, and they require different skill levels. The problem, I think, starts with a lot of kids nowadays 
aren't being encouraged to go into these particular fields because there remains a stigma. Oh, you know, you're going to work with your hands or, oh, you're, you're not going to be a doctor. You're not going to be a lawyer. You're not going to be an insurance salesman, whatever. Well, we need all those professions, but I think we need to do a much better job of trying to match skill sets and aptitudes, you know, with with the kids. 414-799-1620. And this is going to be a, an increasing problem. And it's going to be a problem for this state. And it's going to be a problem for other states. We need to match skills with, again, people and their aptitudes and their abilities. And I think the idea of pushing lots of people towards apprenticeships is exactly the way to go. All right, let's talk about this. 414-799-1620. And if you are, you know, in one of these, if you're if you're a manufacturer or, you know, you work in a manufacturing company or you're involved in one of these sort of skilled trades or just the trades. I mean, how tough is it to find people and and why is that the case? We have the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 947 Jeff Wagner 620 WTMJ. Okay, a couple of texts. Some of the problem is that employers want three to five years of experience. I also think high schools need to bring back classes that explore that as employment opportunities. My son graduated on June 4th and started the plumbing apprenticeship on June 5th. A- absolutely. Um, okay, another text. Uh, Mr. Wagner, there is, you can call me Jeff. There's no stigma about working with your hands. The problem is simply that they don't pay enough money. These companies think that 15 or $20 an hour is a good wage. You can't make a living on that. You can't raise a family on $20 an hour. It might sound good compared to McDonald's, but you cannot raise a family on $20 an hour and have any kind of life. Okay, well, all right, but the, the, the point is, look, there's a lot of jobs that you get with a college degree that aren't paying close to $20 an hour. It's not just the question of working at McDonald's. I mean, there's 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 nurses that are making less than $20 an hour. So I mean, I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure it's the wages. I'm not sure somebody says, "Hey, the, the reason I don't want to go be a plumber or an electrician or whatever or, you know, a, a metal fabricator or whatever is that it's only, you know, paying 20 quote unquote only paying $20 an hour because like I say there's a lot of people that come out of four-year colleges that are making a heck less lot less than $20 an hour. Let's talk to Kristen in Sheboygan. Kristen, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. What do you think? Um Well, I know from experience, my husband has worked in the fabric, you know, the factory job for over, oh, probably about 17 years now. Um, And the problem is he's only in his late 30s and he is completely exhausted because these companies want him to start at 3 or 4 in the morning and stay till 4 in the afternoon. and then work overtime plus. So he's doing, I mean, the hours are great. I mean, but he's completely exhausted. It's hard work. It's hard work is what you're saying. It's hard work. It's definitely hard work, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, we have sons, and my husband encourages our sons to get that college education because it's it's hard work. He has mm-hmm. no time for our family because he's completely exhausted mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day. Now, the, the fl- and, 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 I, and Kristen, I, I believe me, I appreciate that it's hard work. And my guess is that that's one of the reasons why, you know, some young people just, my gosh, you, you look at, you, okay, your kids look at how hard your dad has to, their, their dad has to work, you know, and comes home exhausted and working that stuff. And I'm sure that's a factor. At the same time, there, there's lots of people who put in 
like really, really long hours in like white collar jobs or whatever, and probably don't make close to the amount of money that um, you know somebody who's got at least a degree, a degree of skill has. So it kind of all balances out. I mean, lots of people do work hard. It's just a different kind of hard yes. work. Yes, it is a different type yeah. of hard work. But I know that um, it's just yeah. you know when families see their their dad and stuff like that working that hard, right? And and don't have time to spend with them and things like that, mm-hmm. I think that really discourages them from going into those areas. And it's a continual generational right. you know, thing. No, no, and I'm sure that's, I think, again, I, I mean, I think that that's a factor, and it, it is clearly hard work. And by the way, I'm not, when I talk about this, I am in no way, shape, or form discouraging people from you know pursuing you know, four-year college degrees or, or whatever. I'm not. I, I do think, though, that there's a there, there's kind of a disconnect that has developed over the last several decades between people's necessarily abilities and aptitudes. And my only point in this regard is that look, God bless English majors. Okay, there, there's there's nothing wrong with that, but there's only you know, there, there's only so many jobs that are going to be out there for, you know, English majors. And, you know, if, if somebody has, okay, if somebody's abilities and aptitude lead them more towards somebody who can do metal fabricating, for example, okay, well, maybe maybe that's the way we should be pushing them, getting that, that training where, you know, they're going to be able to finish their apprenticeship or they're going to be able to come out of vocational school and they're going to be able to get a good, you know, middle-class job. Um, you know, even even if it's twenty dollars an hour, it seems to me that's better than the nine bucks an hour. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to uh, Dave in Sheboygan. Dave, you're on six twenty BTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. Yeah, th- we are in for a, a rude awakening here. You know, we're all we're all baby boomers retiring. I work in the trades. Um, I'm a maintenance mechanic. We mm-hmm. had a you know, just an example. We had a, we had a job opening, entry level maintenance, eighteen seventy five an hour. In Sheboygan here, we didn't get one person under the age of fifty to apply for that job. Not one. Uh, not, um, just general maintenance. Not one under the age of fifty. Wow. We did not get one person under the age of fifty that was that could pass a drug test, for okay. instance, or that, that wanted to work. Right. Eight hours, forty hours a week, no overtime. We could not get one person under the age of fifty years old to apply for that job. Wow. <laughs> now, what, what do you attribute that to? Why do you think that's happening? Um, I think you kind of hit on it a little bit with the last caller. Um, people, they don't want to get dirty. You know, mm-hmm. um, we have contractors come to our, our place here to do work, and plumbers have had kids walk off the job because they don't want to dig holes. They don't want to get up in the ceiling and pull wires. Right. pipes. <laughs> it's, it's hard work. Yeah. But you know what? It pays good. You're you're going to school one day a week, if that, and your your these apprentices are now they're starting at seventeen, eighteen dollars an hour as an apprentice now. Right. But the 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 tech, the tech schools are just begging for kids to to, to to come and get apprenticeships, but they're not there. They don't teach it in the high schools anymore, like they used to. Yeah, well, that, I mean, thank, see, that, that's a, and you're right. I mean, it, it is hard work. Okay, it's it's eighty three degrees right now here. So I mean, let's say you're you're right. You're Okay, you're, you're working, you're, you're pulling wire. You're up in somebody's hot attic, you know, because you're, you know, you're pulling wire because you've got to install something or whatever. Right, it, it is hard work, but at the same time, it, it's a job that, 
th- there's always going to be the need for that. Um, let's see. We have a text. Grafton High School in Ozaki County has an excellent industrial arts program. Homestead in Mequon, also in Ozaki County, removed that program years ago as they did not feel it was worthwhile and didn't want their students participating in the industrial arts. Shame on Homestead. Now, I, I don't know how accurate that is, but, I mean, I do – I mean, I, I've told this story before. When I graduated from Nicolet a long time ago, back in the day, they always talked about their college placement program. They were bragging about these huge numbers, 9 out of 10 students going on to college. What they never told you was the college graduation rate. And I, to this day, firmly believe the, re, the pressure was, okay, go to college, go to college, go to college. And that's great for a lot of people. It was great for me, all right? As I said, it was great for me. But there were lots of other people who would have been candidly a lot better off, at least early on in their careers, if instead of being pushed to go to the liberal arts college, you, you push them to do something that they were ultimately probably going to end up doing, where they had the skills and the abilities, and that's um, you know that's the that's the trade. Let's talk to um, Mark in Mosquito. Mark, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Good. I work with the metal fabricating industry. And I think it is such a disservice for our high schools to not push students towards that. Uh, I know some teachers at the various county technical colleges. Right. When these kids, there's two-year programs, after the first year, if they have any type of aptitude, my customers are snapping them up, saying, when you graduate, we're not only going to pay for a portion of your schooling, but you're going to be guaranteed a job for two or three years, so you're going to start working right away. Yep. You know, how many college students can say that? Um, <laughs> yeah, not many. You know, yeah, and, you know, if you graduate, once you do get your tradesman, especially in metal fabricating, you could put, you could leave Milwaukee with your with your degree. You could move to Denver. Sure. And I would venture to say within two or three days, you would have a job. Yep. Because there's such a high demand. So uh, for schools not to be pushing it is it's such a disservice to the students because the, the world is their oyster. I talk to these young men in this profession. And I said, 70% of the tradesmen in our industry are over 50 years old. And there's such a significant gap. Yeah. In five, ten years, you guys will be, you guys have been making whatever you want because there'll be no one to replace people like me. Right. So it's a wide open field right now. No, and, and, and we, right, we have, I mean, thanks to call, yeah. No, thanks for calling, And we, we, you got to have that matching. Um, <laughs> Rick in New Berlin sends me a text. Jeff, stop promoting the trades. I'm making hand over fist in the industry, and I don't need any competition. Laugh out loud. Yeah, that, 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 that's it. There, there is this gap. And, I mean, I, I've been just banging on this for years and years. And I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons you're seeing a, a manufacturing jobs kind of disappear is that, that employers can't find people who want to do the work. And we've had at least three calls from people in the trade saying, hey, you know, it's we don't get people under the age of 50, under the age of 50 who are looking at these jobs. These jobs are going to be out there because, trust me, there's all sorts of people, whether it's Gen Xers or millennials or whatever, who who can't do this type of work. Um, and so they have to pay other people to do the type of work. And and um, we whether it's apprenticeship programs or funneling people into the trades, we've got to do a lot better job of that. And that's what President Trump's going to be talking about tomorrow. 
It's 10.09, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. One final thought, uh, a text message got from Mark in Watertown about what we were talking about in the last hour, the the, the lack of, of young people wanting to go into the, the trades. Mark writes, I just graduated high school and have had a few friends who are entering into the workforce and apprenticeships and other areas of work. The school essentially disowned them. At the graduation, there were only a few moments that the school even talked about those entering into the workforce. Yeah, that's, uh, again, I, I'm... Believe me, I'm I'm be the last person to criticize colleges, but it's not for your college degrees, liberal arts degrees, so you can come out, can't find a job in your chosen profession, end up being a barista. No criticism of baristas. It's not necessarily the best thing for everyone. And we are doing, I think, a lousy job of matching up abilities and aptitudes with jobs. And you're starting to, to see that. And it's coming out in a big deal. All right. Story in the paper. It might be front page of the the uh, the actual hard copy of the newspaper today. Walkers Point residents complain of sewage odors from Jones Island. If you are not familiar with the, the area around Milwaukee, Jones Island is the sewage treatment plant located kind of in the Walkers Point area. I mean, think a little bit south of Summerfest. That's where Jones Island is, kind of right under the Hone Bridge, right, in, in that general that general area. Um, the sewage treatment plant has been there since the 1920s. They also make fertilizer. They make malorganite. And um, you, you make fertilizer, well, you, you make fertilizer with a bunch of stuff. But it's, you know, it's it's smelly type of stuff. And, it, again, it's been there since the 1920s. Well, th- this Walker's Point area has, of course, this is one of the sort of the hotbeds of, where you know, the millennials and stuff. It, it's, it's an area that, that's coming back. Um, lots of new development. Let me read you the way the Journal Sentinel presents part of this. A fast-growing neighborhood on Milwaukee's near south side with new restaurants and costly condos is located a stone's throw from the state's largest sewage treatment plant and its unpleasant odors. Walker's Point is the only city neighborhood that can boast all three major rivers, Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinick, flowing around its borders. It is cheered as a walkable and bikeable environment that draws people outdoors, all of which is true. As sure as some people moving to rural properties, however, eventually complain of manure smells from the third-generation farm down the road, some of the residents who have moved into Walker's Point in recent years are questioning why sewage odors from the 1920s-era treatment plant on Jones Island invade their space? Let me reread that sentence as written in the Journal Sentinel. As sure as some people moving to rural properties eventually complain of manure smells from third-generation farms down the road, some of the residents who have moved into Walker's Point in recent years are questioning why sewage odors from the 1920s-era treatment plant on Jones Island invade their space. Okay, let me just give you a quick answer to that. It's it's a sewage treatment plant, and I don't know, it's kind of like, to an extent, if you move next door to the town dump on a 90-degree day, there are going to be odors that come from the town dump. If you move next to a giant farm, when they put manure on it and the wind blows from certain directions, you're going to smell the manure. If you buy a house near the airport, 
um, you are probably going to be in some flight path, and you will hear airplanes, but I digress. Um, in emails earlier this month on a social network, one neighborhood resident wrote, the smell can't be healthy for the residents. Um, somebody else writes, still can't believe people are paying top dollar with this poor quality and probably noxious air quality. Last week, another resident posted, I made the mistake of having my car window open as I exited off the highway. I'm not going to stop complaining until this gets fixed. Okay, 414-799-1620, that's our number. It's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You have some residents who are now moving into this increasingly hip and trendy area. They are complaining that, gee, it smells bad because presumably when the wind blows in a certain direction, you know, we're getting odors from the sewage treatment plant. We want to make it stop. Do they have a legitimate complaint or if you live next door to an airport, do you have to understand that there's going to be planes coming and going? If you move and build a place or buy a place in the shadow of a sewage treatment plant that's been there since 1920, do you is it reasonable to expect that there's going to be some odors that come from the sewage treatment plant. Okay, do these folks have a legitimate complaint, or is this, you knew what you were getting into, too bad, so sad? I'll tell you where I come down on this. If you haven't figured it out, we'll discuss. Are these people, at least some people, moving into Walker's Point, they are complaining about odors coming from Jones Island. Are you sympathetic? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1015, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1017, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, in a society that is seemingly plugged in 24-7 and living their lives online. A new trend is popping up among newlyweds, social media prenups. Okay, John McCure has the story, 334, during Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Journal Sentinel is running this big story about some people who live in the Walker's Point neighborhood are complaining about Jones Island, which is the, the sewage treatment plant, and they also produce malorganite, you know, fertilizer. And they're complaining that, gee, sometimes the air smells bad. I rolled down my car window and it stunk. Well, okay, the sewage treatment plant has been there since 1920-something or other. 414-799-1620. Look, I mean, really? You're going to whine about this? I mean, seriously? I mean, here's the bottom line. You knew that there was a sewage treatment plant that was there. If I was going to buy a house down there, and it's a wonderful neighborhood and it's walkable, but you know what? That would have been one of the factors that I ended up considering. And if it bothered me, I wouldn't live there. But the sewage treatment plant was there before the millennials moved in. Let's start with Debbie in Milwaukee. Debbie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. I agree. Uh, I used to be a loan officer, and it's location, location, location. Yep. Your market value of your property takes that into account. And I guarantee they got that property for less than if it was in Brookfield. Yeah, you know, you, you raise an interesting point. My um, my my um, my father-in-law and mother-in-law passed away a number of years ago, but they, they lived very close to the airport, um, right on the Milwaukee-St. Um, Francis border. And on certain days, they were in a flight path. And, you know, you really, they, they didn't notice it, but I did. You'd sit outside in the backyard, and you'd see these planes that were coming by, and it was loud, and you had to yell. But I, there's no question that they got more of a house in that particular area because they lived close to the airport. Some people would would never have considered living there, so there, there was that incentive. You know, it, it's just, 
What are you supposed to do? Close the airport? Close the sewage treatment plant? Not at all. Um, right. No, thank you. That, that's, it, I mean, it is a factor. Now, I would have a different story on this if you had people that were you know, living there who then suddenly decide, well, okay, if, if the, for example, if, if Milwaukee suddenly said, hey, you know, we, we need a sewage treatment plant. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take um, X amount of acres of park space and we're going to turn this into the sewage treatment plant. And you say, wait a second, you know, I've been living here and now you're going to turn this into a sewage treatment plant. I get I get that argument. But in this particular case, the sewage treatment plant was there before everyone else. Tony in Milwaukee. Tony, you're on 620 WTMJ. Um, good morning. Hi, Tony. Um, well, good morning. I, think a lot of these, I think a lot of these people actually did know um, about the smells and they didn't care. And they went ahead and bought their properties. And I think a lot of them thought in the back of their head, well, if we get together and we whine enough and we you know, make a big stink about this, we're going to get our way. And then guess what? Well, we got our property for a very low price um, because you know, it was by the smells. And now they, now they got rid of it. Now you know, we all made all like banshees. Right. I think a lot of those people were trying to pull that. Well, right, or, or right, the idea that okay, we're going to collectively, we're going to move in, we're going to get the the benefit on the price, and then we're going to start whining about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, okay, that's a risky strategy. If you decide, hey, I'm going to move next to the shopping center, but I'm going to try to uh, now complain about the traffic. Okay, good luck. Maybe it'll work, but 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 you might end up living next <laughs> to the shopping center. Yeah, yeah, uh, you're right. It may backfire on you. Well, well, exactly. And again, it, it's. I, Look, I will tell you. I mean, I, I don't, I don't hang out in the Walker's Point area that much, and I don't know how bad these smells are. I mean, there's there's different regulatory rules that you know affect this, but the truth of the matter is, it's a sewage treatment plant. All right, it, it's not going to smell like perfume. They're making fertilizer. My guess is that there are odors that are associated, you know, with that. And my guess is it probably could be a quality of life issue to an extent, but. That that's something that you factor in, and if it bothers you, you shouldn't have bought the place in the first place. Uh, Jeff in Fox Point writes, I don't have much sympathy. It's not difficult to conduct research when choosing a place to live. They probably could have found out about the stench or at least seen the plant on a map and figured out in fairly little time. Um, I quickly ruled out an apartment when I found that it was by a train track. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Tim writes, millennial, one, the definition of millennial, one who buys a home next to a poop factory and then complains that the neighborhood smells like poop. Yeah, I mean, the, the train analogy is absolutely perfect. I have a friend who a number of years ago was looking at a house, and there was literally a train track through their backyard. Uh, I mean, the, the backyard ended, and then there was the train. And it was a nice house, but I, I... And I think a lot of other, I mean, I, I actually cautioned them about buying the house. I said, because, you know, this, you're going to need the special kind of buyer. And they said, well, look look at the house. I've looked at all sorts of comparable houses and look at all the stuff I get. And, you know, it's just, it's got a lot more than other houses, even in the same general area. And I said, well, that's because it's got a train track in the backyard. I mean, it, and, and I said, there's a lot of people that's just going to be a disqualifying thing because they're not going to want to be awakened at, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Or if you've got kids, I mean, do, do you really want, you know, do you want, you know, your property ending within a very short distance between that and a train track? And the answer is, you know, 
I, some people aren't going to care. And, you know, my friend, well, I don't have kids. I'm willing to do it. I said, okay, well, just so you understand, when it comes to reselling the property, you've you've really limited the market because a lot of people are going to go in. They're going to look at the house. They're going to say, this is a wonderful house, but I don't want train tracks through the backyard. And they're just going to turn around and walk away, and they're not going to see the other parts of the house. Now, if you're not worried about that or you think you're going to live there for 20 or 30 years and you don't. You think you could get used to the train? Well, go with God. Do that. But if you go into it with the idea that I'm going to buy this and then I'm going to complain when I get awakened at 2 o'clock in the morning because you've got the whatever going through essentially the backyard, sorry, it's just it's the trade-off that you make. So with all due respect to these people who don't like the fact that, gee, probably particularly on hot days when you get a wind in a certain direction, that it doesn't smell great down in Walker's Point, all right. The sewage treatment plant was there first. Um, so suck it up and live with it. It's 1024. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up on the program. Um, sanctuary churches, should we allow that? And the controversy over a modified Shakespeare play. Uh, this is a national story. I'll tell you all about it in just a couple minutes. 1025, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <laughs> It's 1027, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, let me give you some breaking legal news. Um, with all the controversy involving Donald Trump and Europe and stuff, this, this trial's kind of gotten lost. But uh, Bill Cosby's been on trial. He's accused of, and I think everybody knows the Cosby story, he's accused of sexually assaulting a woman uh, back in 2004. Um, that matter, it, it went to trial. And um, there's... It's been an interesting case. The accuser testified. One of his other accusers testified uh, candidly. And I said this at the beginning. I thought getting a conviction, regardless of what happened, I thought getting a conviction in this case was going to be very, very difficult as to whether you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt or not. And part of the problem is if you're not in the courtroom, you really don't get a sense of how things are going. Certainly the way the case was reported last week, it gave the sense that the prosecution was was building a very strong case against Bill Cosby. In any case, the prosecution rested on Friday. Um, there was speculation over the weekend that Bill Cosby was going to testify. And let me just say this. There's no way in God's green earth that Bill Cosby was going to testify because if Bill Cosby hit the witness stand, all these other alleged, quote-unquote, other acts and other contact with other women and stuff, that would have, I think, then arguably came in. But Bill Cosby was never going to get on the witness stand. But anyways, there was the suggestion that maybe he will testify. In any event... Uh, the defense got its opportunity to present its case this morning. Uh, the defense, its case, resulted, it was six minutes. Six minutes uh, getting an off, one officer to confirm information in some police uh, report, and now the defense has rested. Um, the defense will be arguing that there is the existence of a reasonable doubt. Presumably, I mean, my guess is that... Uh, the case will go to closing arguments. Some of the reports are suggesting the jury could get the case as early as this afternoon. I don't think so. I think probably much more likely, um, you know, tomorrow or, or Wednesday. But um, Bill Cosby, the defense rests. They do not put on a case. Defendants do not have to do that. It is the burden of the prosecution to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's what the uh, defense argument is going to hint at, that there is reasonable doubt. Candidly, as I said earlier, I, I thought it was unlikely that they were going to get a conviction. But 
um, the prosecution case, at least if you believe the public reports, has come in about as well as can be expected, regardless of what happens, regardless of whether 79-year-old Bill Cosby is convicted of sexual assault or not. It really is a classic example, number one, of how the mighty have fallen. Um, when you consider that, you know, back back in the 80s with the Bill Cosby and show, I mean, Bill, Bill Cosby was America's dad. It re- really was. And if you weren't around or watching TV during that particular time, you, you just don't understand how popular that show was and how revered Bill Cosby was. And now, again, whether he's convicted or not, you kind of learn that there was the public Bill Cosby and then there was the real Bill Cosby. And uh, there was quite a difference between the two. Actually, his wife also was not in the courtroom all last week, and she apparently did show up in court with him today. Read into that what you will. It's 1035, 87 degrees. Here at WTMJ, our WTMJ Classic free ride is out of our garage and ready to head into yours. You can register online to win the 1968 Valenti Oldsmobile 442 convertible by heading to WTMJ.com. Sponsored by Prescient Financial Solutions with Northwestern Mutual. And don't forget to text the word RIDE to 414-799-1620 to check out a photo gallery of your next car. Um, I, I don't know. Hondo, when you were in school, did, did you ever read? Did you read Shakespeare, or was that kind of passe? In high school, you read Shakespeare. Okay, I um, th- th- this is this is weird. I I just I I don't by any shape or way, shape or form, claim to be an expert in Shakespeare, and I was never into acting and things like that. So I mean, didn't do plays, but for some reason, there's there's certain Shakespeare plays and phrases that I can recite verbatim. And I do at parties every once in a while. I, I can do the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day, etc. from Macbeth. Um, I won't do it on the radio because people won't believe I'm doing it from my head, but instead of reading it. But I, I can do it. I mean, don't ask me why. That sticks in my mind, but I can. And I can do stuff from Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. Um, there's And there's a few other Shakespeare plays that I, I know relatively well. One is is Julius Caesar. Now, the, the Julius Caesar story is is not – I mean, everybody knows the Caesar story, successful, you know, military, you know, operative – you know, comes back and ends up being assassinated by members of the Senate. You know, beware the Ides of March, all that type of stuff. So, I mean, everybody knows the the Caesar story. Well, there's a the New York Public Theater and New York Public Theater. They they perform. They do performances in Central Park. Um, I've never been there. I I know what the venue is, and you know they they, they do these various performances, and it's very well, very very well received. They are staging this summer. They're staging Julius Caesar, you know the Shakespeare thing, and um, you know fine. I mean that's lots of people stage Shakespeare, but there is a twist this year. They are staging Julius Caesar um, that reimagines, and and by the way, you know how it ends for Caesar, right? He is assassinated, right? So the public theater has decided to reimagine and restage Julius Caesar um, with the main character being President Trump. Now, they haven't changed the language of the play, but the Shakespeare in the Park play tells the story of a leader assassinated by Roman senators over the fear that he's becoming too tyrannical. But rather than the original setting, the production stages Caesar and his wife um, with Donald and Melania Trump lookalikes. Um, 
The Caesar character models his Caesar almost perfectly after Donald Trump, um, including blue suit, the red tie, the the big, they play it with like the orange wig, etc. The wife, uh, Calpurnia, plays it with a thick Slavic accent, much like Melania. And, of course, everybody knows that, you know, he meets his end after being stabbed to death. In this case, in this way this is staged, he's not stabbed to death by your typical male Roman senators, which they were all male at the time. He's instead stabbed to death by women and minorities on the the stage. Um, I read a review of this in the New York Times yesterday. And the New York Times, of course, which you know loves anything you know anti-Trump. We, we was talking about how incredibly violent the, the whole thing is. Now, of course, you know it also goes on. If you know the play and you know the story, you have um, you know Brutus, who's his best friend, who stabs him. But you also have Mark Anthony, who then you know gives the eulogy and then you know holds up. In this case, apparently, it's like the bloody body of of the Caesar slash Trump character and uses that to, you know, turn the crowd, you know, against the conspirators. But it's apparently very graphic and very, very bloody. And it it reimagines Caesar as the killing of, in this case, you know, President Trump. Um, This has drawn lots of criticism. Um, There are arguments that the show is promoting violence against the president. Um... His son, Donald Trump Jr., is quoted saying, I wonder how much of this art is funded by taxpayers. Serious question, when does art become political speech? Does that change things um, with, in this regard? Well, the, the latest development is a couple major um, sponsors, Delta Airlines and Bank of America, have both pulled their sponsorship of this program. Um for example, the, the statement that's issued by Delta Airlines says, no matter, and, and Delta donates somewhere between 100000 and half a million dollars annually to you know this theater group. They write, no matter what your political stance may be, the graphic staging of Julius Caesar at this summer's Free Shakespeare in the Park does not reflect Delta Airlines' values. Their artistic and creative direction crossed the line on the standards of good taste. We have notified them of our decision to end our sponsorship as the official airline of the public theater, effective immediately. Bank of America, one of the public theater's other dozen corporate sponsored sponsors, offers the same. did the same thing. They pulled out. Bank of America says, we support arts programs worldwide, including an 11-year partnership with the public theater and Shakespeare in the Park. The public theater chose to present Julius Caesar in a way that was intended to provoke and offend. Had this intention been made known to us, we would have decided not to sponsor this. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, nobody arg- would argue, I think, that you know public theater groups, theater supposed to be edgy, controversial, all that stuff, they have a right to do things. Also, I think you know you would also argue that sponsors have a right to say, you know, we don't want to be associated with this. This does not reflect our values. And so, I mean, Delta Airlines and Bank of America within their rights, the public theater, I guess, is within its right to, to stage this type of stuff. But, 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 as I often say on this program, just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean that it is the right thing to do. If you would have had, two years ago, the public theater decide to do exactly the same thing, but instead of portraying Julius Caesar 
as Donald Trump and portraying Melania uh, and portraying you know Calpurnia as um, again Melania Trump if instead this had been Barack and Michelle Obama can you imagine the outrage that would have ensued oh my gosh this is racist this is terrible this is you know encouraging violence it is encouraging people to take action against the president Right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I guess the, the theater company has the right to do this, but I think this is in incredibly bad taste. And I think under the circumstances, the sponsors are absolutely right in pulling this. Um, I guess maybe you would argue, though. Hey, it's Donald Trump. He's an American Caesar. Anything goes. And a play portraying the killing and the assassination of Donald Trump. Well. Uh, what what's the big deal? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I think this is an incredibly incredibly bad taste. And the idea that just because it's Trump, anything goes. I think that idea needs to be rejected. Your reaction? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty is the number we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's ten forty three. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. It's ten forty eight. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Look, I understand. Donald Trump is controversial, and I understand that there's lots of people who criticize him. I think tomorrow we're going to talk about this resistance summer movement that is popping up, which is now let's try to create as much chaos as we possibly can to protest Donald Trump. So I understand all that. But at the same time, there are there are limits, or at least there should be limits. And, you know, whether you... Okay, Kathy Griffin, two weeks ago, who's now whining, I'm a victim. Okay, she decides to pose with a severed head of President Trump, and then wonders why that there is a backlash and starts whining when, again, it, she becomes so controversial that, you know, she, she loses certain gigs. Well, okay, there, there are lines that you, you don't cross, or at least, you know, maybe being a, a Trump hater means that you think that there are no lines. And we're talking about there's the Shakespeare in the Park thing in New York. That's uh, it, it, What they're doing is they're restaging Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, of course, is assassinated in the play, and they're restaging it with, the main characters dressed up as Donald Trump and Melania Trump, and a number of people, including a number of the sponsors, are saying this is just incredibly poor taste. My argument is always flip it around. If this is was this if this was two years ago, and this was you know Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, you know wouldn't there, could would the New York Times be embracing it as free speech? And, oh, this is this wonderful performance. No, you know that they would be absolutely outraged. Isn't it interesting how uh, selective outrage can be? Let's talk to Jim and Racine. Jim, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jim. Jim, Jim, Jim. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Yeah, I think this uh, onslaught of Donald Trump, I don't care who president is, I think there needs to be a little bit more respect. Maybe we got too many freedoms in this country. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression. I don't like the idea of everybody bashing the president of the United States, regardless of who it is. And I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. They're dividing the nation. There's going to be a riot. I remember what happened at Kent State University. And one of these days, some lollipop's going to get an AK-47 and go one of these rallies and... That'll create a story for all these news outlets that want one. Well, you know, I mean, Jim, I mean, look, I, 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 somebody who makes a living, you know, embracing the First Amendment. I mean, I'm not going to criticize that, and that's why I think, I, I think that you know these. these 
in this case, this public theater company or Kathy Griffin, as I said, have a right to do things. But I, I think that they're also, if you are going to engage in conduct that I think is just an incredibly bad taste in the extreme, you have to understand that there are going to be consequences, you know, for that. And this idea that because we are the liberals and we are the better people and so we don't like President Trump, so anything goes well, all right, you have a right to do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. And again, I mean, I, I think for, I can't, candidly, you know, Delta Airlines and Bank of America, I, I gained some respect from them by saying, look, this is, this just crosses the line. And, yes, this is their artistic expression, and I'm not arguing that they shouldn't do it. And I'm sure this is going to be an incredible popular play because, I mean, this is this is New York City, and, you know, you're going to have, you know, every left-wing person that's going to be there that is going to be applauding this and saying, that's exactly right, this is the American Caesar. But, you know, you raise an interesting point. If, if given this tone and temperament that you have – one thing after another, and whether it's the resistance summer, which, again, is all these crazies that are now coming out and trying to disrupt anything involved with Donald Trump, or this idea that's being you know, preached in the media about how pretty much like anything goes, because this man is just going to destroy this country, you do wonder what's going to happen if some nut, underscore nut, um, decides that they're going to try to take matters into their own hands. So do they have a right to do it? Yeah, they've got a right to do it. But at the same time, it's nothing to be proud of. And and I do think, I do think some of these institutions that should know better would do well to ratchet down the level of hate just a notch or two. And I understand, you know, it, it, like it's fair to criticize you know, anybody, whether they're on the right or the left. But the nature of this type of criticism and the nature of types of things that you're seeing out there, I think, you know, it's really kind of like code red when it comes to certain threat levels. And I think responsible people on both sides of the aisle might wonder whether or not you, it's, like I say, time to ratchet down the rhetoric uh, quite a bit. So haven't seen the play, read the descriptions, have the idea. Um, I pretty much know what this thing is all about. Um, and you just wonder whether or not whether or not if something bad would ever happen, there would be any responsibility laid at the feet of some people who might be, again, might be catalysts for it. Just saying. 1053, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1056, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, there's an interesting race to watch. Um, for, okay, for Democrats, there's been a lot of attention. How, how unpopular is Donald Trump, and how will that translate into Republican losses in the upcoming November of 2000 elections in November of 2018? And my in, easy answer right now is it, it's too early to tell. But there have been a handful of special elections, typically people, Republican office holders, congressmen, who've left their seats to take positions in the Trump administration, and so there's elections to fill their vacancies. And and th- this has actually caused a split among Democrats because the, the, the Democratic Party, the traditional Democratic Party, said, look, we, we can't fight everywhere. Let's try to figure out 
where we have a chance of winning, and then let's put our resources in. And then you've got the unhinged, you know, like never Trump left that's just, no, 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 we have to fight him every, we can't agree with every anything, so, you know, we've got to pour resources in here, here, here. And so they've been fighting what has turned out to be losing battles. You know, they went after somebody in Kansas, they lost that. They went after the uh, congressman in Montana, they lost that. Well, coming up, um, it's going to be next week. It's uh, a week from tomorrow. There's this special election in Georgia. This is the old Newt Gingrich seat. It's it's a very Republican suburb of Atlanta. You will remember it was one of those things where they had this open primary, and the Democratic candidate, if the Democratic candidate would have gotten 50% of the vote plus one, they would have been elected. He didn't. And so now it's a more traditional race. There's a runoff between the Democratic candidate and, um, again, a Republican. The The race is very, very close, although there is a poll out now suggesting that uh, the, the Democrat has moved a couple points ahead. I'm a little bit skeptical of that, but this is a race where if you want to talk about, you know, just spending going nuclear, this is it. Because there's going to be millions and millions of dollars that have already been put in, and even more, as the Democrats say, okay, maybe if we can finally win one of those seats, that will then be the, the message that Trump really is hurting the Republican Party. Where that goes, I don't exactly know. But um, the, the candidate, his name is John Ossoff, he didn't get his 50% plus one. But uh, there's a new poll out in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to the extent that you believe polls um, that says that he's winning with 51% of the vote and that his opponent has 44%. I would be very skeptical of that, but I guess you never know. But this is the race to watch over the course of the next eight days. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes. Well, I want to talk about this church that's declared itself as a sanctuary city and ah, the passing of one of my childhood icons. Stick around. It's uh, 1059. It's 1107. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I, I, let me go on record. I think it is incredibly cool that the U.S. Open is here this week. And it's not just for the revenue that it's going to bring in to the area this week, um, one of the things that you see is when, when you have a, a golf course that hosts a, a major event, whether it's a PGA Championship or Ryder Cup, or in this case, a U.S. Open, one of the things is you know golfers from all over the world then want to play that course. And so the, the effect, I mean, it's like people come to Whistling Straits from all over the world to play golf there um, because... It's a course that's hosting a Ryder Cup. It's a course that's hosted two PGA championships, and it's a spectacular course in and of itself. But you know, you want to play at those kind of courses. People want to play at Pebble Beach. People want to play at those places, and um, a, a lot of them are, you know, sometimes at private country clubs that the general public can't play. The average person can play Aaron Hill, so it's very, very cool. And the economic benefits are are, are just tremendous. Now, let me do. Let me give you some advice, and I don't mean to be a, a naysayer here. Um, if you are going out to the U.S. Open, my advice would be you should plan to make a, a day of it um, because of the relative remoteness of the location. They've set up like satellite parking areas. One is at, I think, Pabst Farms. One is at the Washington County Fairgrounds because there, there's really not any appreciable there, – there's not parking for all practical purposes – at the course. Now, I understand that there's some neighbors and stuff who are opening up their their lawns and stuff if you want to pay $40 to park your car. 
but even that I think is somewhat limited. Most people are going to get to the course by going to you know one of these satellite parking areas. You're going to go through security. You're going to get on a bus, and you're going to ride like 30 or 35 minutes there and back. So it's not like like when the, the Greater Milwaukee Open, or they used to call it the U.S. Bank Open. It's not like you know it used to be at Brown Deer Park you know, where you could kind of pull in. You could park without too much of a problem. You could go. You could watch an hour or two of the tournament. You could leave. I don't think it's going to be like that. So, I mean, my advice is um, if you want to see world-class golfers and stuff, it's great, but but make a day of it because, you know, you're going to be talking about a process to get in, a process to get out. So if you think you can just pop in for 15 or 20 minutes. Now, the truth is I'm probably not going to go because – um, I, I, I mean, I think it's going to be a great venue, but again, I'm Thursday and Friday, got to work, so I don't really, you know, leaving here at 12, I, yeah, no, it's just, you know, we're 12.30 or so, and Saturday and Sundays, well, probably not. But if you get a chance to go, I, I encourage you to do it. Just, you know, be prepared. There's going to be a lot of walking that is involved in this, and, you know, dress accordingly, and it's going to be really, really warm as well. So, um, but I, I think it's a, I think it's a great thing for the area. I think it's tremendous for all the organizers who've worked so very hard to, you know, get Aaron Hills on the map, and hopefully everybody has an absolutely outstanding experience. But regardless of what the effect of, like I say, and that's the bigger point, regardless of what the effect of is having the tournament here this week, um, this is, this is a big deal long term. Because now, once you become a U.S. Open venue, people are going to want to play the course where you play the U.S. Open. I mean, I remember, I mean, I played Pebble Beach a long, long time ago. And back then, it was stupid money. Now, it's just absolutely crazy money. But it was fun because from the perspective of a golfer, now when I watch Pebble Beach on TV, I think, oh, I remember that hole. I remember where I was. Look where the golfers are. And it's just, it's just sort of an interesting type of thing. So, um U.S. Open, it's great to have everybody here. If you're coming into southeastern Wisconsin you happen to have us on the radio, welcome. Um, hope you enjoy your stay. Spend plenty of money. That will be great. All right. Appleton. Wonderful community of Appleton. Finds itself in the news more often than not. Yeah, that shooting at the bar downtown, and some people are trying to racialize this. All right, here's the story. There is a church up in Appleton, the Unitarian Universalist Federation, oh, Fellowship, I'm sorry. I know it's not the church of what's happening now. It's the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. A week ago, what, Sunday, announced that they were going to become a sanctuary congregation. Now, there's lots of talk about sanctuary cities, and there's lawsuits that are pending, and there's threats coming out of the Justice Department, and it's really... The term sanctuary city is very, very difficult to define, and it means different things to different people. But essentially, it means a city that refuses to cooperate with federal law enforcement when it comes to enforcing our immigration laws. So anyhow, the Unitarian Universalist Church up in Appleton has declared itself to be a sanctuary congregation. Um, This is one of the, the first churches in uh, the state that is doing this. What they're saying is that essentially, you know, we are going to be an institution that is making this commitment. And, you know, what we will do is essentially offer ourselves as a safe haven to help a person facing deportation 
or even offer temporary housing. Uh, the fellowship has apparently cleaned out a utility closet in its building, which presumably means if somebody is subject to deportation and you want to go to the church, you can live in the utility closet, I, I guess. And the, the hope is that you know they will not cooperate with authorities. Um, 2011 U.S. Department of Homeland Security memo, now this is during the Obama years, says U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents should not conduct detentions at sensitive locations such as places of worship, schools, and health care facilities. But with prior approval from a supervisor, you know, you can do this. Um, the minister for the church says, part of our work is creating a safe and welcoming space in our church building for an individual to come while they face their deportation project and process. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, it's, it's one thing to say we are a sanctuary city or we are a sanctuary you know, congregation or whatever. It's another thing to wonder exactly what that means. Let us assume for the sake of argument that this church means what I think it means when it says they're a sanctuary congregation and that people who are subject to deportation, they can come and you can live in our utility closet or something like that. With all due respect to the church, I don't think churches, just like I don't think cities, should get to decide you know, which laws apply and which laws don't apply. And if there really are people that are been ordered deported and it's time for them to go and they decide that they want to, quote, unquote, seek sanctuary in the church. Well, I, I think with all due respect, um, it's time for immigration to say, OK, no, enough is enough and this isn't working. And, you know, we're coming onto your premises and we're going to take the person who's been ordered to be deported, we're going to send them home. And I guess I don't see this much different than, you know, would you declare yourself a, a sanctuary congregation for somebody that's been accused of sexual assault or somebody that's been accused of various crimes? You know, I mean, there is a system, and I don't think cities get to be above it, and I don't think businesses get to be above it, and I don't think churches get to be above it. So how should authorities respond to these sanctuary congregations? Under the Obama administration, the rule was essentially just let it go. If somebody wants to hang out and live in the church, we'll let them live in the church. 414-799-1620. I would say, with all due respect, nuts to that. It's 1116. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1119, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. 89 degrees, pushing 90 degrees. Um, this is early summer heat. After she was caught on camera berating a police officer, a popular sports reporter, not from around here, was fired from her job. Did the punishment fit the crime? What if the video never surfaced? Would she still have been fired? Discuss with Scafidi and Billstat at 207 today. Yeah, that is a lesson that I think everybody needs to learn. You are always in public, and there is al- almost always going to be a video so consider that before you decide that you want to engage in bad behavior right now we're talking about the story involving the unitarian universalist church in appleton i do not know how large the congregation is i get the idea that it's um probably not that large um what they're doing 
Um, let me see. Well, the congregation, let's see, the, fe- the fellowship has an adult membership of 720. So, I mean, that's not a bad size necessarily. But here, here's, the bottom, here's the bottom line of this. Nobody is above the law, whether it's cities, whether it's individuals, or with all due respect, whether it's, it's churches. And I don't think churches get to pick and choose, you know, which laws they want to follow. And I understand during the Obama administration years, they said, look, we don't, you know, we don't want to provoke confrontation. So, you know, we will essentially look the other way if churches decide that they want to be safe havens for people who are subject to deportation. Well, I think it's time to end that practice. And so far, nobody has come to this congregation in Appleton and said, hey, we want to hang out here in order to avoid deportation. But if that becomes the case, and I understand this would be something the news media would love to cover, seems to me that's when immigration gets a warrant. If you've got evidence to believe that there's somebody who is subject to the laws, who is violating the laws, and decide that they want to hang out inside the church, you, you go get them. You get the warrant, you exercise legal process, and you go get them, and you arrest them, just like you would not allow the church to harbor a bank robber or somebody who's allegedly committed sexual assault. You, you shouldn't allow the church to harbor, knowingly harbor, somebody who is subject, again, through the legal system to due process, somebody who's been through the system. And if you've got a warrant, I, I say the church, you know, I'm, it's unfortunate, but the church doesn't get to be above the law. You go in, you take them out. And if that's bad press, well, it, it's bad press, but it's also, I think, bad press for the church. Coming up in just a couple minutes, a driver in Racine County is arrested I'll tell you what he did and what the consequences are. It's 1122, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1124, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It took months for Valenti Classics to build this year's incredible WTMJ Classic free ride. How did they do it? Check out the time-lapse video of the entire restoration in the Classic Free Ride garage section of WTMJ.com. Okay, with friends like this. Now, Wisconsin has a law, and it's well, it's immunity from criminal prosecution for, for possession. Here... Um, here's the way it works. Um, imagine a situation where you and your buddy, you and your girlfriend, you and your boyfriend, you are both drug users, and you're doing heroin together for the sake of argument, and all of a sudden, one of the two of you ODs. All right, so there's this thing. What do we do? Do we call? What do you do? You call nine one one. Okay, your your girlfriend, your spouse, whatever is is dying of an overdose, but you're afraid because you're both like drug users that if you call the cops to potentially save her life, that you might end up getting prosecuted for something. So Wisconsin has a law which says that if you are a, an aider, and an aider is somebody who who brings somebody suffering from a drug overdose into an emergency room or a, a treatment facility or calls an ambulance or calls 911 etc you are are not going to be you are immune from prosecution for possession of drugs 
or possession of drug paraphernalia, etc. So you don't have to worry, hey, I'm high on heroin, um, I, I, I'm going, but I've made this call. You don't have to worry that you're going to be prosecuted. Now, that, that's the law, but it just applies to possession. possession. So here's what happens the other day. And with friends like these who needs enemies, a man accused of deserting a friend who had overdosed on opioids was arrested in Racine County on Saturday. A 911 call alerted the Racine County Sheriff's Office of a possible drug overdose around 2 p.m. Saturday. A deputy found a good Samaritan giving chest compressions to a 20-year-old man who wasn't breathing, according to the news replace. The deputy apparently administered a dose of Narcan. That's a drug that reverses the effects of opioid overdose sometime. And the man began to breathe again on his own. Here's the story. Apparently what happened is 20-year-old guy was riding with a 22-year-old man when he began to show signs of an overdose. Okay, rather than driving to a hospital, what the 22-year-old guy did was pulled over, dragged the man from the car, and left him by the side of the road, screaming to somebody, call 911. Okay. Um, so somebody finds the guy, starts administering chest compressions. Deputies I mean, come out, and they administer the Narcan. The Narcan. Deputies found the driver nearby. Um, his story was, oh, I didn't just pull my friend, dump him by the side of the road, and scream, call 911 and drive off. I was leaving to find Narcan. Well, the problem with that is deputies found him in a residential area driving away from where he left his friend. So this creep, I mean, he's dumped his drug-using friend, um, drug-ODing friend, by the side of the road, screamed, somebody call 911, and he's trying to get out of Dodge. That's what's happening. Um, ultimately, the driver apparently tells police that he's on heroin. He's now been arrested and charged with drug driving, drug driving, and first-degree recklessly endangering safety. Yeah, if he had stopped, now this is one of these interesting things about the law, because if he had stopped and called 911, he would have been immune from prosecution for you know the fact that he had heroin in his system. He wouldn't necessarily have been immune from driving while under the influence of of a drug or if he is the one that had actually administered like shot the guy up with heroin or something that there could be charges on that but by virtue of the fact that he he didn't try to get help from his friend other than dumping him by the side of the road and screaming 911 he's now looking at charges of first degree recklessly endangering safety uh, the Racine County Sheriff Christopher Schmeling says I struggle to understand what type of person leaves their friend to die I can only hope our justice system makes an example out of him well I mean here's the answer to that uh, sheriff that the type of person that leaves his friend to die is the type of person who's, uh, again, a selfish drug user who is afraid that, gee, the consequences for me doing the right thing and trying to keep my friend alive, those consequences, well, they're going to outweigh, um, you know, whatever benefit I might have by trying to flee. That's the type of person, a genuinely lousy human being, that, again, leaves his friend to die by the side of the road. Now, the good news out of the story, once again, is somebody did call 911. A good Samaritan was there, and so ultimately the guy didn't die of the drug overdose. But um, with friends like this, seriously, who needs enemies?
1135, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Attorney General, uh, Jeff Sessions, is going to be testifying tomorrow in front of the uh, in front of a Senate committee. That will be interesting, probably not anywhere near as explosive as the James Comey testimony was, but certainly something of interest. The, the other thing that uh, appears to be emerging, and it's it's really tough to tell in Washington nowadays because there are so many leaks and so many things that people are putting their spin on. But it does appear that there's a rift developing between the president and Jeff Sessions. And, of course, that would be interesting because, you know, Jeff Sessions, former senator from Alabama, was one of President Trump's earliest supporters. I mean, he jumped on this Trump train very, very early on. And was, of course, very controversial as when he was nominated to be the attorney general. Not controversial in my mind. I thought he was eminently qualified. But um, he had some baggage back when he was the U.S. attorney in Atlanta out of he was a U.S. attorney in Alabama after the in the 80s. And um, he was shot down for a federal judgeship because of allegations that, you know, some of the prosecutions were racist. I thought that was very, very trumped up, no pun intended, and, and kind of bogus. But he was very controversial. And Trump sort of went out on a limb by by nominating him. Now, ultimately, he was confirmed, uh, but now there's apparently a rift that's developing because what, what he did is he recused himself from the, the investigation as to whether there was criminal involvement in Russia's involvement in the U.S. Uh, election. And that apparently has upset President Trump, and the reports are, see, Trump wants this whole issue to go away, and it's it's not going away in part because... I mean, it's a legitimate investigation, even though there's at least no credible evidence right now that the the Trump campaign was involved. But it's not going away also because the the truth is, and this is getting lost in all the political discussions. I mean, the the truth is, regardless of whether Russia in this election was meddling to try to help Donald Trump or help Hillary Clinton, it is a big deal if you have foreign countries that are – hostile to us and russia is hostile to us big picture i think it's important to have a good working relationship with them and you don't want to start you know a shooting war with russia but at the same time if you have countries that are trying to meddle in our election process you want to identify that and you want to figure out ways to to stop it i mean you don't want to allow elections to be influenced by you know foreign powers like i say that aren't necessarily friendly to the u.s so i mean i think the investigation into what happened even though even if it never leads to criminal charges and i really don't believe it will the investigation into what happened what russia did and how we can prevent it i mean i think that's a meaningful thing but in any event you know trump wants the at least the part that alleges that you know there was some sort of criminal involvement on his part. He wants it to go away, and I think he was upset when Jeff Sessions announced that he was going to recuse himself because now you've got this special prosecutor or a special investigator that, that's involved, Robert Mueller, and the question becomes, all right, is it now going to be more difficult for Trump to control this? And will the investigation, even if it doesn't lead to anything, will it be prolonged? And, and the answer to all that is, is yes. But I think he's apparently mad at Sessions. be interesting to see what Sessions says when he testifies uh, tomorrow. All right. I was watching a – there was a – I'm fascinated by different documentaries. And I, I like the serious documentaries, and I like the fun ones. There was a documentary that, that came out a couple of years ago, and it was making the rounds on pay TV. It was about Adam West. Adam West was – the 1960s TV star who you want to talk about being typecast, 
he played Batman in the old Batman TV show. And from that point, Batman ran three seasons. Um, and from the time he debuted as Batman to his death over the weekend at the age of 88, died last Friday in Los Angeles. From the day that that TV show premiered in 1966 to the day he died, he was forever seen as Batman. Now, he did other things. He did voiceovers and things like that. But but his career, I mean, it was a blessing and a curse because he was Batman, and he really, anytime anybody looked at him for anything else, I mean, they ended up seeing, they ended up seeing Batman. They didn't see... You know, a handsome movie star or anything, they saw, hey, this is the guy that, you know, ended up playing, you know, Batman. Now, there was this documentary, and there was a couple um, couple guys who were trying to work to get him his, his space on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, to get him his star. And ultimately, they did in, in 2012. So, it, it, but it followed him around. And the way, while he did, you know, he did voiceovers for, you know, and he appeared in cartoons and things like that. But, um, I mean, he made... He made his money, and he made a ton of money over the last several decades. Most of his money he made by doing um, shows. You know, he'd, he'd go to the comic book conventions, and he'd, you know, and he'd sign stuff, and he'd go to the TV conventions. And, you know, and he ultimately, it was very cool to find that ultimately here's a guy that became confident in his own skin. I mean, he was very, very upset for a while after the Batman thing ended that you can't get jobs. But ultimately, I think just like William Shatner, who did get some jobs, and just like Leonard Nimoy to an extent, you know, who were ever going to be forever, whatever, regardless of what else they do, they're going to be Captain Kirk. You know, Leonard Nimoy w- was going to be Mr. Spock. And ultimately, th- they came to embrace that and appreciate it. So it was a really interesting documentary, and I, I had fun. All right. I remember, Hondo, you were not born, but I remember... January of 1966, so I'm like, whatever I am, eight, nine years old, whatever that would be. I remember when the Batman TV show debuted. And to say that this took the country by storm would be an an understatement. It premiered in January of 1966, and and it was a half-hour show. I think everybody's probably seen it reruns. But, you know, it ends with a cliffhanger. The first film, I remember the first show. It was uh, Frank Gorshin who played the Riddler and... Jill St. John, who even back then, eight or nine years old, I knew Jill St. John was really hot back then. But, you know, that she played like one of the, the villains as well. And it was a 30-minute show. And then it ended with a cliffhanger. Hanger. You know, holy, you know, I, I forget what, what turmoil, what life-threatening turmoil Batman was in. And then they come back the next show. I want to say it was Wednesday and Thursday nights. That might have been Tuesday, Wednesday. But I think it was Wednesday and Thursday. And then they come back, and they save themselves, and, and they win. But it was just this incredible thing. And, and the country, honest to goodness, went crazy over this TV program. I mean, it's done it before Dallas, the Who Shot JR thing. You know, maybe there's a couple others. But, I mean, th- this was an incredible phenomena. And, and everybody, everybody was just Batman crazy. Now, it, it was a craze and a fad that kind of petered out. So you had, I mean, the show ran, essentially, it ran three seasons. The first two years were, again, back-to-back. And then the third year, it was just one 30-minute show. But the country was just obsessed. And, and Adam West created this incredibly iconic TV character of Batman to the point that, you know, he, he, he was always going to be Batman. And a lot of the characters, I mean, Burgess Meredith, you know, did, did all sorts of great stuff. He was always going to be the Penguin. Um, Cesar Romero, who's a big-time movie star, he was always going to be the Joker. Uh, Burt Ward, <laughs> who, um, you know, played Robin. I mean, that that's all he's, that's all he's been. I mean, it's kind of like Jerry Mathers and the Beaver. I mean, that's that's what he's always been, and that's what he's always going to be. So I thought... 
to kind of recognize the passing of Adam West and to have a little bit of fun on a hot Monday morning, um, I, I was thinking about other television characters that were just iconic, that just had this this impact and input that sort of transcended the run of the show. And I thought it'd be fun to open up the phone lines. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line to honor the passing of Adam West, who passed away on Friday at the age of 88, who forever would be Batman, the most memorable TV character ever. If it wasn't Batman, what would the character be? And I'm talking about this character that's just... You know the, the the actor or actress, you know, indelibly related to the the part. You know, they're like it's almost impossible to separate them. And when you think about TV shows, okay, what's that? What is that character? That that that's what that person is always going to be. The most memorable, indelible TV character ever. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. It's eleven forty three. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1147. Jeff Wagner. Okay, our text line is exploded. It's our phone lines. Okay, iconic TV characters, kind of in recognition of the passing of Adam West as Batman. Randy says uh, Jackie Gleason is Ralph Cramden. Uh, Justin says Jack Webb as Sergeant Joe Friday on Dragnet. Uh, let's see. Gary Coleman will always be Arnold Jackson from Different Strokes. Um, Derek writes Bob Denver on Gilligan's Island. Yeah, there's a... There's a lot of them there. Um, let's see. Mary says, uh, uh, James Gandolfini, Tony Soprano. Isn't that the truth? I was watching this movie, Get Shorty, and James Gandolfini has a kind of small role in that. And before he was Tony Soprano, you look at that and say, man, that guy's Tony Soprano. Uh, Scott in Heartland. Scott, good morning. Hi, Jeff. How nice. are you? Real well, thank you. Okay, iconic TV character. Well, I was thinking about practically every cast member on Hogan's Heroes yep. kind of turned out to be whoever they were going to be. Uh, Bob Crane, obviously. Yep. Uh, Colonel Clink and Sergeant Schultz. Right, John Banner. Who they were. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, Robert, I mean, Robert Crane, matter of fact, he was a kind of a strange guy, was murdered. Um, I, I just actually watched, there's a movie called Autofocus about, about him. And, uh, but yeah, he was, he was forever, he was forever Colonel Hogan after the show ended. Uh, Curly in Germantown, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, sir. I remember Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels, <laughs> the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Yeah, Clayton Moore was always going to be, you know, hi ho silver in a way. You're you're right. I mean he he was right. Thanks for I mean Lone Ranger he was the Lone Ranger. Um Steve in Lomira. Steve you're on six twenty WTMJ, the most iconic T V character. Um, well I'm gonna say you know, first off, the first guy that called in about Hogan's Heroes. I watch that show every night with my 20-year-old son <laughs> really? on ETV. But I, but my answer is um, uh, Michael Richards, who played Kramer. Kramer. Oh yeah, that's. I, I mean, right? He will. He will all. You know, type. Talk about typecasting. He will always be Kramer. You know, and if anything he ever does, moving on, you know, people are going to always be screaming, "Do Kramer!" Or they're going to see Kramer whenever he comes out on TV. That's what I. That's what I see every time. <laughs> yeah, no, right. I mean, it, it's, right. It's it is the blessing and the curse of creating the iconic character. Chris and Grafton. Chris, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Okay, iconic TV character. Okay, well, I'm glad to see I'm not too old. Uh, for my suggestions here, but I have a one and a one A, I suppose. My number one uh, would be uh, Carol O'Connor as yep. Archie Bunker. Yep. And uh, number two would be uh, Alan Alda as Hawkeye Pierce. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Thanks. Let me, yeah, um, Alan Alda has gone on and done all sorts of other stuff. 
and and I always and you're right, I I, I always see Hawkeye. Um, Carol O'Connor, who you know was just in a ton of movies. I mean, you know, you watch all these movies, and, and, and he's just popping up all the time. He's a classically trained actor, but yes, he especially when the All in a, the Family hysteria hit. And I mean, I remember in the '70s when that show debuted. I mean, it was. I mean, Archie Bunker was just the dominant thing. I'm not sure All in the Family has had the resonance. The, the resonance and, and the legs, even though it was a transform, transformational TV show, I, I'm not sure as many people still, you know, are familiar with All in the Family today as they might have been when it first came out. But, yeah, Carol O'Connor was that candidate, no question about it. Karen in Wauwatosa. Karen, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi, Jeff. I Hi. would say George Costanza. Okay, the other character, right, Jason yeah. Alexander. Yeah. Oh, is that who his name is? I, I, I've the, probably seen every Seinfeld Twice, right, and I couldn't tell you the name of the actor who played George Costanza. <laughs> but but yes, but you see, um, yeah, no, but right, but you look at the show and you, whenever you see him moving forward, yeah, I mean, thanks to you know Jason Alexander, who, who's done all sorts of other stuff and continues to do things. But yeah, it's one of those things you you see him and he's always going to be George. That is the iconic character. Let's talk to JJ in Waukesha. You're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, good morning. I would say, sticking with superheroes, Wonder Woman. Now, you're going to have to help me. What, her, what was her name? Linda um, Linda Carter. Linda Carter. Linda Carter. Right. <laughs> That's, right. See, I, I would have been a much better lawyer or student if I spent more time like studying instead of watching TV and remembering that stuff. Hey, you know what, JJ? I, have you seen the new uh, Wonder Woman movie? I have not yet, but I want to. You, you should. I saw it uh, with a friend Saturday afternoon, and it's really, really good. <laughs> Is it? so, yeah, it's fabulous. No, check, yeah, it's, I, right. Thanks. For, I mean, check it out. It's it's worth it. We um, it, it's just it's worth it. And like these, the the movies based on DC comic books, I thought have been kind of crummy in general. But Wonder Woman, it works. I mean, it it works. Um, it works a lot. Russell in Brookfield, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Yes, my favorite is Maverick, or also known as James Garner. The James Garner character, right? He's well, right. Even though he later did the Rockford Files, his his role that he played in Maverick was just the ultimate. He was in some other movies and things sure. after that. But anytime I see him, I still see him dealing he, cards with a big sure. smile and that and the outfit that he wore. Right? Yeah. He, no, James, and James Garner was one of my all-time favorite actors, and he he did. I just one of my favorite movies with Julie Andrews is called The Americanization of Emily, and I, I just it's an older movie. I love it. I encourage people to look at it. But yeah, and he did the Rockford Files and stuff, and did a lot of other stuff. But yeah, he was always going to be um, Brett Maverick. Paul in Cary, Illinois. Paul, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. I, I, little side note: I did have the pleasure of meeting Adam West years ago with uh, Julie Newmar and Burt Ward at a comic book. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. And he was. What a nice guy. Yeah. What a nice guy. And when he signed my original Batman membership card, oh, my gosh, the smile <laughs> on his face is priceless. <laughs> Your original Batman. So you, you remember you remember that show from the 60s as well, huh? Oh, my gosh. And, and the kid going to school the next day, oh, we talked all about it, and we had to make sure we were there for next week. Yeah. Absolutely. So who's your, uh, who's your uh, most memorable character? Well, the original law show was Perry Mason. Right, Raymond Raymond Burr. Raymond Burr. Yep, um, Raymond Burr, absolutely outstanding. I'm kind of up against the clock. Gosh, we've got so many great ones here on our text line. Mary Tyler Moore will always be the single girl from Minneapolis. Marlo Thomas will always be that girl. 
yeah, Ed O'Neill as Al Bundy. Yep, um, Al Bundy on uh, Married with Children. George Jefferson, um, tremendous one as well. Chris says, Mr. T from the A-Team, uh, huge when I was growing up. It just It's just amazing how... You know, TV characters kind of infect and affect and influence our life and how you remember them and how indelibly they become, you know. We, we didn't even talk about the Andy Griffith character, you know, uh, Sheriff Taylor from that show, plus so many other. Lucy Ricardo, I mean, she's always going to be Lucy, uh, Lucille Ball. Just so many characters. Walter White from Breaking Bad, you know, um, uh, for uh, Cranston, whether Brian Cranston. Is that going to typecast him? All those different things. Adam West. You know, sail on. We're going to find out uh, what Steve Scafidi and Eric Bilstadt have on their schedule. Stick around. It's coming up. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 11.55. Okay, this is a funny story. Mark says, Jeff, Adam West was related in marriage to my ex. In 1988, we attended his daughter's wedding at SMU in Dallas. At the reception, Adam kept an extremely tight eye on the open bar. We joked from then on out that that was the night that we drank a lot of Batman's booze. He was actually a fun guy that night. That's for Mark. That's great. Uh, Eric, it's a, he's like, okay, he's watching the bo- open bar. Hey, well, you, don't, you don't need that high-end stuff. Don't be drinking that top-shelf <laughs> stuff drinks, here. Rail please. Exactly. 